tonight on Arena. Blind Boy Boat Club on his new short story collection and Emer Noon on how technology and creativity work together in her musical life. Joining me this evening on Arena is the mask-wearing star of The Rubber Bandits, widely acclaimed podcaster and short story author, Blind Boy Boat Club. Blind Boy has published two short story collections to date, The Gospel According to Blind Boy in 2017 and Boulevard, Wren and Other Stories in 2019. Topographia Hibernica is his third collection and it quote, unravels the knotted threads of humanity, nature and colonisation while touching on an array of topics from the comic to the macabre. Delighted to have Blind Boy Boat Club with me in studio this evening. That's quite the mouthful of a a title. It's the title of one of the stories. It's also the title of uh, of the collection. What specifically were you getting at with that? So Topographia Hibernica is also the name of uh, a manuscript from the 12th century, which is like, I consider it the first ever British tabloid. When, when Ireland was being invaded by the Normans in like 1170 uh, onwards, we'll say, while they were invading Ireland, they needed like an excuse to stay here. So it wasn't just a violent colonisation, it was an ideological one as well. So a fella called Gerald of Wales he wrote a manuscript called Topographia Hibernica, which was like a story of the people of Ireland at the time. But what it did really is it completely dehumanised us. It was very surreal. Um, he claimed that people up in Donegal ate birds that grew on trees and there was all accusations of bestiality and it was a way to make the Irish people appear not human and also to say that we defiled Christianity and then that's then used as an excuse to justify yeah. invasion and colonisation and the Pope at the time was English and so a thread that I was putting at with this book with this collection of short stories is that I'm fascinated by the relationship between biodiversity collapse and also colonisation so those are kind of the two themes That's interesting because in the, at the beginning of the book before we get any of your stories we get a quote from the, the Gerald, the, Geraldus de Barry Topographia Hibernia uh, where he basically starts off the Irish are a rude people and that's one of the <laughs> nicest things he yeah, says yeah, yeah. in the opening sentence but on the other side of that page in the collection you have a, a, a page of quotations from Dr. Avi Nihulawan and this was the final report of the Citizens Assembly on Biodiversity Loss which was published in March 2023 it starts with only 2% of the country has native woodland mm-hmm. and it gets worse from there mm-hmm. on about everything that we've lost mm-hmm. in terms of biodiversity in, 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 the, in the meantime. Obviously, that's another topic that was big in, the, in your mind. So it is because the two, the two are intertwined. Um, if, like, if you look at colonisation, like Ireland used to be rainforest. And, and, and the, the, the whole point of colonisation is, is to extract resources from a country, to take a country over and extract its resources and mm. exploit the landscape. And folklore and mythology that's indigenous to a country always has a natural relationship with biodiversity. Like even up until the 1600s in Ireland, it used to be illegal to kill a, uh, a white butterfly. 
Yeah, because people believed that white butterflies contained the souls of dead children. Or people didn't mess with bees because people back then believed that bees belonged to the goddess Bridget and they would travel from the other world to fertilise our flowers. But what you have there is folklore and indigenous knowledge and superstition that actually keeps you in line with with biodiversity and keeps you with a relationship with nature that's very restorative but colonisation takes away the language takes away the stories and then what you're left with is oh it's just a bunch of trees it's just stuff to be extracted yeah and and it it kind of what what I came away with almost at the end of the collection was this idea of well you know what as human beings we have colonised this planet Mm -hmm. we've extracted every resource we can and we're about to mess the whole thing up Mm -hmm. and we've been brutalised in the process of doing that and that really comes across in several of the stories Mm -hmm. the way animals are treated talk to me about the donkey in the very first story in the collection which is called The Donkey so The Donkey is it's a a story about uh, it's a man whose father has dementia in hospital and is at the his, his father is at the stage of dementia where it's not very pleasant to visit him anymore he doesn't know where his father is gone. There's a new person in his place and the difficulty and how difficult it is. And while this protagonist is is visiting his father in hospital, each day in the traffic, he spots a donkey that's been abused at the side of the road, a donkey who's selling Christmas trees who's been beaten. So the man decides as a way to, to kind of process his own guilt. He rescues the donkey and stuffs the donkey into his Fiat Punto and brings the donkey to the donkey sanctuary. But really what he's doing is he has his his mind made up that he's never going to visit his father in hospital again. He has his mind made up that my dad doesn't recognise me anymore. I'm just going to leave him there. And I often wonder when people make very tough decisions like that, what's going to their head? So my character in that book, he's making a decision. Yeah. I'm never going to visit my dad, but I'm going to rescue this donkey. And you know what I mean? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so to balance, I, I, it, it was a curiosity it, yeah. around those things. What, what justification do people use to do things that are hurt other people? But I get the impression that y- you wouldn't consider that in your mind a, a, a balancing out, or do you? No, no. It, it's it's. I mean, it's a tough one. It's a tough one. I mean, a lot of it as well is is when I was nineteen. My father got a brain tumour and he suddenly became a new person in, in, a, in, a, in a matter of a week. And I had to witness uh, the degradation of a person I loved deeply suddenly change in, into someone new, you know. So there was a bit of myself in there at the age of 19 trying to understand that, you know. I, I'm, I'm, I'm interested that you said that because as I was reading that, I thought, did this happen? You know, was Blind Boy driving around Limerick and did he see somebody doing something awful to a donkey? And maybe... Well, that, that the donkey bit's even true as well because when I was in school, I had an art teacher who was very nice to me and, and he did actually rescue a donkey on the side of the road and shove it into the back of his car and brought it into school. And we all went out to the schoolyard and there's this massive donkey just shoved up into a Fiat Punto. And it was, and one it of was the most, a Fiat Punto. Yeah, it was one of the most surreal things I'd ever seen because he knew, he got the donkey in but he couldn't get it out. And he just had this huge face and these massive eyes stuffed into the side of a Punto. Yeah. And I remember seeing it at 17 and it was such a visually arresting image. But with any story that I'm doing, I have to be authentic. I have to be authentic. I have to process my emotions correctly. So there's going to be a lot of uh, biographical information in yeah. there, you know. You, you got to, 
you got to take from what you've experienced yourself and then put it into a fictional universe. Now that's in, again, because I, I, I was trying, I said to you before we started that one of the things I was surprised about when, you know, when you hear about the donkey in the back of a fate ponto and blind boy, you think, ah, I know the world I'm in now. It's mm-hmm. that kind of madcap, etc., etc. I'm sure all those words that you've heard thrown at you before. Mm-hmm. But what really struck me in a number of the stories, and particularly in this one, that man's dilemma around his father. I mean, he clearly loved his father. Mm-hmm. He clearly wants to care for his father. He's a humane person because mm-hmm. he wants to care for the donkey. But there he is thinking, what's the point in my going up there? I don't even know if my father will know if I don't come to see him. People make those decisions all the time and those people live otherwise good lives and they love their children and they love their... And sometimes things are just too tough for people. And there are people who they have an elderly relative or whatever and they just stop going to see him because going to see them is too painful and I was just trying to explore what's it like for that character to to not be judgmental I don't want to be judgmental to say this is good this is bad it's a more exploring a curiosity about the internality of that character you know what I mean and and that internal life that internality as you said there that was precisely what kicked me was you thought well that guy's in a that man's in a a difficult position a a, a difficult position too for another of the protagonists of one of the stories uh, the cat piss astronaut is Mm -hmm. is the title of the story a young boy here who at the age of, well, he's in junior infants, isn't he? Yeah. And he knows everything about the planets. And when you hear the child of whatever, four or five, kind of, when you hear that ten, that kind of way of speaking, you're wondering what's th- going that on. That story, like, so I, I'm diagnosed autistic and I got an autism diagnosis only a year and a half ago, you know. And again, th- that story is very, bi- a lot of that happened to me. Um well, you you were a, you were the junior infant and you yeah were about there's the, the, the yeah solar yeah system. so there's a, a that that's quite biographical. What I tell you, what did happen to me is how that story ends is quite brutal. I, I was about five or six years of age, and I I was I knew I I I was obsessed with the stars and the planets. You know, this is all I cared about. And I went up to a playground near my house, and there was a woman there. She was about in her forties, and she was with her daughter, who would have been my age, six. And I just started speaking to the woman and the daughter about, you know, one day the sun is going to expand. And when the sun expands, it's going to, reality will end. Like, this is a fact. The sun will expand one day. It could be billions of years in the future. The sun will expand and consume the solar system. The daughter got frightened saying, Mammy, Mammy, what's he saying? Is that real? But then the mother got frightened. This really happened to me. The and, mother, and were you, the young you, were you yeah, frightened? Yeah, yeah. You were frightened. Me? No, I kind of loved it. I liked the idea of the, right. sun, the sun consuming the earth. But the woman then beat me severely. She, she beat me the way that you'd beat an adult. As an autistic kid, that's a common experience for people who are neuro, neurodivergent. Like, uh, that, that was me learning at a very young age. I didn't understand what it was to be cheeky to an adult. When you're neurodivergent as a kid, you can have an, uh, an advanced vocabulary and advanced knowledge, even though you're six years of age, but you don't possess the maturity. You possess a, a six-year-old maturity. And there are some adults who like to feel superior to children. They like to feel superior. And when, when a child comes up with an advanced vocabulary or knowledge that frightens them, there can be severe consequences. And for me, at six years of age, I, I was physically abused by a stranger. She beat the living shit out of me, really beat me. 
And that's what's in that story. Yeah, and the other aspect of that... it was cathartic that, for me to, to explore that as an adult and to look back at it, you know. Well, I'm, I wondered about that because at this point in time, I suppose if you spoke to anybody about Blind Boy and the Blind Boy podcast, they'd say, well, what are you going to hear? Well, you're going to hear a lot of truths. You're mm-hmm. going to hear a lot of truths that might make you feel uncomfortable. Are, are you saying something within that story in particular, the one about the young autistic boy, mm-hmm. we, we can guess, are you talking about this idea that people don't want to hear the truth, not just from young, autistic and very bright people, but the, from lots yeah. of other places as well? Yeah. So so wh- when I had that actual experience as a kid, I learned in that moment to keep my mouth shut. I, I learned that to be deeply passionate about the things that I love could potentially be dangerous, you know. Um, people who are neurodivergent, they don't understand hierarchy understanding hierarchies can be difficult so when I was a kid I didn't really see adults I just saw other people so I'd speak to adults the way that I'd speak to other kids from my point of view I'm just I want to tell someone about a new fact that I learned but for some adults it's oh you don't get the rules here you're cheeky you know what I mean so you can be punished quite severely and you learn to just be quiet and for me I developed a shame around knowledge I developed a shame around passions I, I, I fact became terrifying things that could get me beaten up by adults, you know. Again, the classic thing when we think of blind boy is the plastic bag, which you're yeah. wearing this evening in studio with me and, and the, the, the red hat up on top of it, matching, mm-hmm. <laughs> matching the, the design on the plastic bag. Does that allow you in, in the classic way of any mask? Does it allow you to speak a truth and to be yourself in a way that you can't be without it? Absolutely. I mean, th- my mask is, there's a number of things with it. There's an element of performance art, you know. I like being a a, a, a walking sculpture as such, you know. And then there's the element of, I want to go to Aldi tomorrow, you know. I just want to have a normal, quiet life. Yeah. And all I want out of what I'm doing, I, I love the process of making art. I love exploring curiosity. Like even though this book here, putting it out is the, the least enjoyable part of it. The fun part was the two years it took me to write. And I'm just so grateful that my job is to create art. But the other side of it where a consequence of that is notoriety, I'm not really into that. And I, I don't think I'd be, it would be very stressful for me if just walking down the road tomorrow meant lots of spontaneous conversation with strangers, you know, and small talk or people recognising me. I'd rather just write my books, put it out. And then when I have to come on TV or radio, I wear a bag on my head and then everyone just, we just accept it. It's normal. And in terms of the podcast, I mean, huge listenership mm-hmm. and a huge international listenership. There is something wonderfully anonymous about radio and podcasting. Mm-hmm. Actually, is, I suppose it's a different type of radio ultimately, yeah. isn't it? I, I guess that's one of the appeals there as well. Well, what the bag allows me to do there is I'll speak a lot about mental health and I'll speak a lot about, I'll be very honest about my emotions. I'll speak about my anxiety, my shame, my embarrassment and people will connect with that. But... I don't think I'd be able to handle... Like, I know some people who are in the public eye who speak about mental health, right? And one of the problems that they have is they're out having a pint and someone sees them and goes, oh, I saw you on telly the other night and you were talking about depression. And now a person is opening up to them in a pub and, and that, that might not be a safe space and it, it, can, it can be quite... Um, it could be dangerous for the other person. So w- when I speak about mental health... I think if a bunch of people could recognise me and walk up to me and say, oh, I get panic attacks as well, I'd kind of draw back a bit because it would be overwhelming. 
And yet, I, I think uh, you spoke in a, an interview I read, you spoke about, I think it was a young woman who spoke specifically to you around the time that you had told people about your uh, di- diagnosis of autism, that she said, you, you made me feel OK about myself when I heard you, yeah. t- you saying that. What kind of responsibility does that put on you? Bag or no bag? See, that's a weird one because I don't have a problem speaking out with say mental health issues, depression, anxiety, whatever. But the thing with being diagnosed as autistic is that everybody is on a spectrum and everyone's incredibly different. So from my, like my autistic experience is going to be vastly different for someone else. Mm. So there could be someone at home and they might be autistic or might have an autistic kid and they have a completely different set of challenges. I'm someone who's completely thriving. I, I, I bloody love being autistic. It's great crack. Like, I mean, I'm never bored. Like I experience frequent, intense joy just that the, the hanging around inside my own head. I love it. It's brilliant. But that's because I'm in an environment. I'm in an environment where I can thrive. You throw me into a different environment. Like I used to work in a call centre years ago. I got fired after three weeks for printing out 93 pages about CIA crack cocaine smuggling. You know, because <laughs> I couldn't stop thinking about it. You know what I mean? So it's no crack in an office. One, but if one, we're writing books, it's grand. One final story I want to touch on is St. Augustine's suntan. Yeah. Um, which you've mentioned shame a couple of times in our mm-hmm. conversation. And this is all, it's a kind of a, a, a slightly different look at mm-hmm. our, the first confession, the Frank O'Connor story. Yeah. Because it's in and around the sacrament of penance and the first communion mm-hmm. and all of that. And a teacher uh, t- saying to the young fella, I'm guessing you, um, you know, you've got to have a proper sin when you go yeah. to confession. If you don't have a proper sin, don't be going near the place. I mean... That again, some of that is is autobiographical. That that happened when we were in school, and you're practicing for first confession. You're literally practicing. And what I found, what I realise now as an adult, that I I find kind of messed up about that all is you're you're telling a seven year old to get a better sin. The seven year olds cannot sin. I realised that as an adult, children cannot sin, but we were told to sin. And that story really, it's about. It's about the feeling of shame and shame, shame is an interesting emotion. Shame is the, the, the feeling that you are a horrible person or have done something terribly wrong and you can't figure out what it is. And the character in this story, it's like, of course you've got shame. Look, look at what you went through in school. And it's about paganism too, you know, and it's about what it means to deconsecrate a church and all that. And, and there's also the side of it that you make comparisons between the confession psychotherapy. box and, and therapies mm-hmm. and, and modern day therapy. Has therapy replaced the confession box? In a way, I mean, one comparison I draw in the story, which I find interesting, is is with, with, there's actually a little bit less shame with confession because with, with confession, it's out there in the open. We all queue up for the confession box and you're admitting to everybody, I'm going to go in to confess some sins now. You're not going to find out what they are, but I'm out here doing it. But with psychotherapy, your therapist will go out of their way to make sure that you never see another client. You go into that waiting room and it's empty and it's time so that you leave and you're not supposed to see the other person that comes. So that then, I understand it's for people's safety and some people might not want others to know that they're getting therapy, but it's also a little bit of shame there. You're hiding away. You can't see the other person. There are some phenomenal ideas across the, sto- the, the stories in the book, uh, Blind Boy. We've only touched on some of them there. I will give a slight spoiler. Geraldus de, de Barry gets his comeuppance in the final story <laughs> yeah, I had to in do the that. book. I had to do that. Yeah, because um, you talk about he, he accused the Irish of bestiality. He gets his comeuppance he does, in yeah. that final yeah. story. Thanks for coming into us. Thanks for speaking to us tonight. Thank you very much for having me. That's Blind Boy Boat Club and his new short story collection, Topographia Hibernica, is out now with Coronet. 
Culture Crush is a major collaborative event launching this weekend, in, this week rather, in Dublin. The event brings professionals from all sectors together to discuss where creativity and technology meet. Experts and practitioners in film, games, animation and all kinds of technologies will explore what the future of the creative industries might look like in this crush alongside uh, the world of technology. One of the main speakers of the event will be world-renowned conductor and composer Emer Noon, who has produced scores, of course, for some of the biggest video games that are out there, like World of Warcraft and Legend of Zelda. Uh, Emer joins us on the phone, and with me in studio here is Gareth Lee also, who is the Network Manager of Cultural and Creative Industries, Skillnet, the organisers of the Culture Crush uh, event. Uh, I'll come to you first, Emer. You're you're in Galway tonight. You're about to go to see So This Is Christmas. I know I've said the word in the middle of November, but there you go. This is a new Irish film, uh, which I think we'll be reviewing on Thursday night's programme. You wrote the music for it, Emer. Have you seen it yet or will this be your, your first, uh, or maybe it's the first viewing in front of it with an audience, is it? Well, Sean, excuse the loudness in the background. Your colleague Sinead called it arts in action and we're always up to something. <laughs> so um, it's it premiered at the Cork International F- Film Festival and uh, but I can't miss the Galway screening being a Galway girl myself. Of course. Um, absolutely. But we did, I mean, Ken Wardrop made a beautiful, beautiful film and we had the great pleasure, uh, myself and Craig, my husband, of scoring the film for him and course recording it in Dublin Um, so this is my second time to see it and uh, it's just the only spoiler I'll say is just bring the tissues that's all (laughs) yeah well that's Ken Wardle and his documentaries I mean I'm thinking of his and hers that that, that, I mean I remember yeah bring your Kleenex along but this will be I suppose it's, it's a chance to see it with your own people as it were I presume family will be there and the fact that it is in Galway that that must add something to it Emer. Absolutely. And there are cast members from County Galway as well. And I, I'm loath to give any more information than that. But I, I am I am advocating people go see it because yeah. it's a side for those of you that are, are sick of the plastic side of Christmas, as I am. This is the, the other side. And this is why we took on this project mm. musically was was we felt it was a story that needed to be told. But it's it's one of these things bringing together collaborators from different media and this is what culture crush is about and um it's it's really wonderful to see irish uh, creative professionals yeah. collaborating on each other's projects especially when there's um both an irish and an international component so i'm i'm very excited about the event on thursday yeah. um let's talk a little bit further about that because uh, as you say this is all about collaboration in fact but it it's about collaboration across what seem uh, on the surface of it to be two very different sectors the technology sector and the creative industries but i mean this is your bread and butter on a on a daily basis, uh, writing music for film, obviously a technological event as much as it is a creative event. And similarly for for gaming, writing music for that. Um, For you, it must seem, what, what are people talking about these two sectors being different? They're in my life every day. 
Yes, we are. I mean, we deal with music technology in particular every day, but I've done mad things with holograms in live performance, synchronizing to picture live, synchronizing to lights and effects and all kinds of crazy stuff. Um, so we use technology in lots and lots of different ways. I've even worn sensors and done some motion, um, some motion capture of conducting and all worn a GoPro on my head in a recording session. Look at, I'll try anything, Sean. But yeah, yeah, because anything- I'm, I'm right in thinking that, in fact, you have performed live with Maria Callas, which is quite the, quite the feat, it has to be said. Well, yes, I mean, that was the Maria Callas hologram project was actually more of a piece of theatre, mm. even though we had a live orchestra on stage. And it was written by Stephen Wadsworth, who is the, uh, the head of opera at Juilliard at the time and a, a director for the Met. And it was really, really fun because it was actually very, very moving. Through the technology, we got to share what Maria Callas had done for her art form. We got to share it with a new audience. And of course, we got lots of people that had seen her when she was alive. But it was more about watching a a conductor have this lucid dream of conducting Maria Callas. And uh, we we employed a lot of crazy cutting edge technology Mm. to bring that to the stage and uh, that was really special one. And Gareth Lee with me, with me in studio, you, you're nodding in agreement with a lot of what Emer's already saying there. That is that is precisely what this uh, day-long event or series of events is about, Gareth. It is bringing those two sectors together I, and it sounds to me from the way Emer puts it that in, in fact creativity is at the heart of both of sets of uh, both sectors in fact. Yeah, absolutely, Sean, and, and good evening, and, and thanks for having us in to to talk about Culture Crush. So, yeah, the overarching aim of the event is, first of all, to bring multiple parts of the creative industries together, because sometimes the different parts of the creative industries can seem siloed. So bringing musicians together with visual effects artists, filmmakers, actors, and so on is, is, is an important thing to do in the first instance. But then that overarching theme is to not only bring people together to explore, I suppose, and debate and discuss the opportunities and mm. challenges that face our sector, collectively um, and also I guess to, to celebrate the great achievements of the Irish creative industries you know including the fantastic work of people people like Emer Noon of course uh, as you said the, the theme of the day is uh, on this occasion is creativity and technology seems like a very apt uh, theme to discuss at the moment and we have an amazing array of um, of speakers international speakers uh, who are going to discuss that topic and related topics across panel discussions keynotes and so on and even though we've got a lot of international speakers a lot of them are actually Irish expats who are, who are coming yeah. back and, and that's always interesting to see yeah. as well so and, looking and forward to the day Yeah no it, it does it does sound quite interesting Interesting in, in that regard. And Emer, I mean, if I can bring you back to that first intersection, if you like, in your life of the technological side of thing, things and the creative side of things, how, how serious a classical kind of focused musician were you at the point at which the world of film music and gaming music kind of dropped into your lap in the way it does in, in Ireland quite often in a pub one night? Well, it, it, I mean, my background is very traditionally classical. I mean, it, it's, you know, mm. uh, conservatory, college, everything. I love, by the way, I might, I might go to that concert. Brahms 4 is my favorite Brahms symphony. Um, but, it, you know, very much so. Um, however, I will say 
before Skillnet, there was Screen Training Ireland. And I am somebody that benefited greatly from their work, as so many of us benefit greatly from Gareth's work and his amazing team at Skillnet. They're absolutely unbelievable. They keep us all upskilling all the time. And technology just moves so fast and we have mm. to keep up with it. But I mean, I loved film music because, I mean, I don't come from a family of professional musicians. And I was fascinated by how music can move move us so viscerally without without sometimes our brains involved and sometimes it's just a physical reaction and I noticed that in film we we still use and in video game music we still use the the techniques of program music and the the compositional techniques that come from the classical legacy um, all the way through to today and we get to use all of these different styles and techniques either the hundreds, multiple hundreds year, year old tech that is the orchestra. Yeah. Um, but together with, you know, synthesizers and all kinds of instruments that we can create ourselves for a project, bespoke instruments even. Um, so that's really exciting to me. But the film thing came about because Screen Training Ireland had an, were running a course that was an outpost of UCLA Extension. And I took all of their courses in film sc- scoring, all the, the same uh, period at, at which I was at Trinity studying music, I was going to these courses and getting a professional training in in film scoring and eventually going to Los Angeles. I Actually, my first trip to Los Angeles, I, I got because I was hired as an assistant based on my work in one of the Screen Training Ireland classes. And now the sort of the, the skill net is now taking over that, that role. Mm. And it's so important, the work they do. It's just fantastic. And wasn't it? It was a situation in Trinity where somebody came in and said, "Look, would you give me a, would you give me a bit of a dig out with some ar- <laughs> some arranging here?" That was David Downs, creator of Celtic Woman. I'm always, I'm just hoping David hears this at some point because I'm always saying it just in case he does. But David was in college. He was in fourth year. I was in first year. And uh, he knew all of the music students were singing in chapel choir. And he came into the pub, to the buttery afterwards and said, what are you all doing tomorrow? Will you come and sing on this, this thing for this Japanese composer? And it was only six months later, my brother and his mates called me up in a tizzy going, did you work on Metal Gear Solid? <laughs> and uh, I had no clue. I had no clue. I was like, no. <laughs> so that, that was fascinating. <laughs> kind but, of opened, uh, up, opened up that world to you. Just one thing that I did do, do often wonder in this particular situation, in your situation, Eamor, I mean, film is one type of technology, if you like, and gaming is a related, but a different type of technology. In terms of composing music for those two different technological areas, are they incredibly different? I mean, I'm thinking of a film as an hour and a half in general, and a scene lasts whatever length of time it lasts, and that's you compose your piece of music to fit the scene, and off we go. How different is it in the gaming world? Well, you know, I have said in the past, um, if Mozart were around, he'd try out video game com- composition because Mozart loved a puzzle. And part of, um, he loved a musical puzzle. And part of composing for games is being as creative and as musical as you can with music that's designed to come apart and go back together like a puzzle and to create an experience for the player. Now, there there are certain similarities in that the, the story that sets up 
up a game is called Cinematic and we score that like a feature film. Everything is locked, is picture locked mm. and all the edits are there and, and we score around it. We've a little more, we've a few different types of, of composition inside of the game. And actually at the moment, I'm writing a, a, an operatic aria for a game which is coming off of, uh, oh, I can't say much more than that or I'll be in big trouble. <laughs> but, uh, it, but we get to, I get to go back into my classical um, yeah. my 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 classical world um there's certain very freeing things but it, it depends as well on the content of the film the content of the game um but they're definitely compatible and there are lots of creative uh, professional disciplines yeah. that cross between the two areas especially in animation writing directing producing acting i'm always saying look this $100 billion a year industry that Ireland is perfect for, bring it on. You know, all of our creatives, all of our technologists and, and all of our filmmakers as well. It's yeah. a very um, compatible area. Yeah, collab- collaboration is the name of the game. We've heard a lot, I suppose, in recent times, Garrett, about the tech boom in Ireland and the, the quality of the tech uh, industry in this in this country and the quality of the minds working within that industry. Can we say the same about the creative industries? I mean, it strikes me immediately to put the uh, the spanner in the work slightly. The tech industry is not short of a few bob. The creative industries are not always flush with money. Yeah, that's a fair point, I think, Sean. Um, but look at it, we, we definitely have a long and celebrated history in Ireland around our creative industries. We're, we're known globally for the, you know, our storytellers and mm. our musicians and our culture and so on. And I think as as Ema and you're referencing there, there's definitely an opportunity to do more and to really, um, you know, excel in that industry here. We already, I would say, punch above our weight. You know, you think about the 14 Oscar nominations earlier yeah. this year. Uh, you think about what you two are doing at the moment in terms of live performance and so on. So it's it's definitely a sector in Ireland that's that's on the up. I would say we get good government support. I have to call that out. Uh, you know, but but from the Department of Culture, but from other departments as well. And some great announcements in the recent budget about um, raising of the cap around Section Four Eight One. We also have a games tax credit, which is is great for the work that Emer and others do in that area. So I think it's an important time for the creative industries, yeah. and I think we just need to continue to invest in people and skills and talents. obviously Emer in recent times as well. There has been much debate. The actors' strike, the writers' strike were all about this interaction of AI and the creative industries. Where do you stand on that? I mean, there are, I suppose, two schools of thought that maybe we're overreacting and we're fearing too much something that we don't know enough about yet. And another school of thought which says you'll never replace creativity with AI. Where where do you stand on all of that, Emer? Well, I see certain areas that will potentially you know go away because of AI but then the other thing is give a creative any new tool and see what they do with it mm. um, we're working on a project that's using um, and using AI to manipulate something that we've created so that's using using AI creatively um, however it is something we have to contend with but I mean the, the creative professionals I know they can make something out of anything and then any new tool, I don't see people being Luddites about AI at all. I see them finding ways to to take their own creativity somewhere they mightn't have
gone by themselves. I mean, that's what we've always done. This is not this is not new mm. that we have uh, something that could potentially replace this, that, the other. We've been dealing that in the creative industries forever since the advent of electricity. You know, it's <laughs> it's just on and on. You know, who who still has you know cassette tapes? Uh, TV was supposed to replace radio, so on and so forth. Yeah. But um, I see my colleagues um, finding ways to do extraordinary things with AI. I um, am positive about that. I do think we need to have certain controls in place. I was joking the other day when I moved to the States first, I saw um, beef with stickers on it that said grass fed. And I'd say, what else do they eat? You know, <laughs> and um, I can see us having, you know, human made right. stickers on our work because nobody wants to be manipulated by emotionally manipulated by a, a computer you know so who knows but I, yeah. I see us using it in very creative ways well listen I, I suppose we're, we're touching on some of what will be discussed on on the day Gareth that's certainly what Emer has done there um, it'll make for a fascinating day thanks so much for joining us uh, uh, Emer and go off now I hope you have the tinsel around your neck and the the Santa hat on to go and watch <laughs> so this is Christmas and the Kleenex in the pocket clearly is, is your Absolutely. suggestion to it as well thanks for joining us on the line and thanks indeed. Thanks, Sean. Not at all, Emer. Thanks very much and thanks also to Gareth Lee for coming into studio this evening and you can combine that that uh, series of events. Emer is one of the, the main speakers there. There are lots of others there too. You'll find all of the details uh, of the event Culture Crush taking place this Thursday the 16th in the Complex in Dublin. Tickets and further information on the website which is culturecrush.ie. In Givru Anima, Katrina O'Leary sings Franz Schubert's haunting masterwork, the song cycle Winterreise. The lyrics translated, or to use a better term, transcreated into Irish by Gabriel Rosenstock. This is the first time that the songs have been sung and, uh, and given to us in the Irish language. Katrina has also range, rearranged the music based on folk and traditional uh, song. Delighted to be joined in studio this evening by Katrina O'Leary to tell us more about, more about this Winterreise project. Um, I suppose just to, to set Vinterizer in some sort of context for, for the listeners, first of all, uh, Katrina, it is you know one of Schubert's master song cycles and it is about this long journey into winter, the young man, I suppose, wandering through his life in some ways. It's, mm. it's quite an esoteric piece in some ways. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It is. Um, and I'm being kind of... Uh, uh, gender neutral in it because <laughs> I'm singing it. Um, it. It's a it's a very esoteric piece and it's quite um, it's very interesting diving into it because there's no it's not a journey in a traditional sense, mm. or a traditional arc of a start, a middle and an end. It just it just keeps going deeper and deeper into winter. And there are a few, I mean, metaphorical winter as well as, as literally represented in the, in the poetry. There are a few um like lighter moments of of dreaming of spring and dreaming of the beloved but then it's like crash yeah, back it bang really is it's, it's a kind of an emotional journey rather than, than than a physical journey that that, that that this wayfarer is t- is undertaking be it a he exactly. or a she exactly all wayfarers can be whatever gender they want to be yeah. um so you've taken obviously the words have come from Gabriel Rosenstock the translation of the Wilhelm Müller poems mm-hmm. that there would have been originally uh, in German 
but you've done something with the music as well. Obviously, Schubert, um, if we hear his versions, they have a very strong leader quality to them. They love song quality to them. They are classical pieces. But they had their origins in German folk music and that's where you've returned to with your version. It is. That was my, um, you know, kind of heady idea, you know, really intellectual idea of it. And, um, but then once I got really deep into the music I realised mm-hmm, he did actually take it quite they, they may be the origins but he did actually take it quite far from <laughs> the folk origins from those origins. originals those original folk origins so but, you've gone right back there have well, you? well I think so I, I've what I've done is I've used it I, I kind of stripped back the the the, the romanticism the, you know the romantic mm. era-ism of it um, and, and just stripped it back to just chords and melody and just we've just used that then as a, a springboard right. into somewhere else, some other. So this I'm not I'm not claiming that this is, you know, um, a, a definitive version of, of the Schubert or anything like this. It's, it, it's your it's just version. A, it's a different thing. Yeah. Yeah. OK, well, let's let's have a listen to one of, I suppose, Der Lindenbaum, the, the Linden Tree would be one of the uh, better known songs of the Schubert song cycle. But in your version, <clears throat> it's called Crown Tilla. And we're hearing a version this evening with yourself singing, obviously, and Alex Roth on guitar. is Cron Tilla, uh, the Irish language version of their Lindenbaum, the song from the Schubert Vinterizer song cycle, but in this Irish version called Gevra Anima, sung by Katrina O'Leary, accompanied by Alex Roth on guitar. I was interested as I was listening to that, Katrina, I, I, I was struck by, I'm wondering about the German folk origins here, because I think there's more of that in there. It starts in that lovely bright major key but it goes dark and, yeah. and minor key in the middle. Is that a specifically a very German folk song thing? I don't think we get that in the Irish tradition to the same extent, would we? I, I couldn't speak perfectly authoritatively on, 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 the, on, on it being a, a, a typical uh, German folk song thing. I think it's, it's a quite um, artistic thing. Uh, mm. You know, it's something that Schubert decided to do to paint this picture of the... Um, the dream of, of of the happiness that he used to have. Or, yeah, because yeah. that specific song is looking back at happier days for exactly. sure. That quality. Then we have Alex in on guitar uh, with us this evening here for yes. for the performance. What will the what will the performing ensemble be on the night, as it were? A small band of Alex on electric guitar, uh, Derek White on uh, double bass, and Dylan Lynch on drum kit. So, it's. We've been working together mm. um, to come up with something new. We're taking it, we're, you know, using our own musical influences and intuitions and we're, you know, combining them to, to yeah, make something so, new and different. While you were saying that it has that, you you are pairing it back to a more folk origins. You're mm-hmm. still holding on to that art song quality that Schubert gave it with that shift in and out of the, the major major and minor tonalities that we did in that. Sometimes. In, in some, not all the time, fair <laughs> yeah. enough. Um, the, the, the translations or the transcreations, as mm. he calls them himself, as I think you call them to have Gabriel Rosenstock. What did that use of the Irish language bring to the songs for you? Uh, well, it brought, uh, for me, um, ooh, uh, 
it opened up the the ideas of of the Irish folk tradition mm. of of just bringing that in there. I mean, just because for me the words automatically then uh, lend themselves to being ornamented yeah. like Irish songs would yeah, be. So you can so you can bring that that aspect of folk exactly. music into it as well. The second yeah. song that you're going to sing for us from the cycle this evening is Wasserflute, um, which would be waterfall or waterflute, yeah. I suppose. Yeah. Then Rauerta is what we have us Yeah, we listen to that now. It's a Rawrta, the title of that uh, Irish language version of the song Vassar Flute from Vinterreise or Gevra Anima, the song cycle of Franz Schubert in those Irish language verses. Really struck me that Katrina Olena performing with Alex Roth um, giving us wonderful effects on the guitar, almost like a drone, like a like an illin pipe drone. And you really explored the Irish side of the tradition, I think, in that song. Is that is that how you've, are you kind of balancing between the two across the various songs in the cycle, Katrina? Yes. Yes, and a few other influences coming into it as well in the in in, in the concert. Um, yeah, I just left myself open to to whatever influences kind of came, and then and and all of us as well. All of yeah. us, because I know you said that Alex ideas. has a Polish uh, background, and I know that there are other nationalities in the other players. So that well, will, he lives there. He, yeah, yeah <laughs> that, that'll, yeah, that yeah. will bring that will bring um, certainly other qualities. So that is what we've been talking about, Katrina O'Leary, the Winterizer Project, or Gevru Anima, Soulful Winter is how I'm going to translate that, Katrina. It's on this Thursday, the 16th of November, 7.30pm at Smock Alley in Dublin. And that's all part of Imram, Fela Litriath the Irish Language Literary Festival, which runs from the 12th through until the 20th of September. Imram.ie for full details and everything happening there and smockalley.com for the specifics of Katrina's event. Now, before we go, uh, I asked you earlier on in what television show did Alex Murphy star? The Young Offenders, of course, was the missing word. And Anne McCarry from Wexford Town will be heading off to here, the RT Concert Orchestra and Kensho Watanabe this are on Saturday, the 25th of November at the National Concert Hall among their pieces, Emer Noon's favourite, or one of her favourites, Brahms' powerful fourth symphony. But that is our lot for this Tuesday evening here in Arena. Paula Shields, Leah Murphy and Niall Fitzmaurice researched. Ollie Hamilton was the broadcast coordinator. Harry Brookless was on sound this evening and tonight's programme produced by Sinead Egan. Talk to you tomorrow night once again, 7 o'clock here on RTE Radio 1. John Creedon will be with you after the news.